Hello, this is Josh, and you're listening to The Invitation. This is our introduction and orientation to our summer series, White People Talking to White People About Racism. It's a reading of the book, Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair by Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson. And this episode here is a bit of an orientation as we prepare for this journey through reparations. And I'm joined by my pastor, the Reverend and Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer. And Pastor Denise helps us consider why indeed should we approach the conversation of white supremacy as people of the Christian faith. So in this episode, I need to cover some details about what we've planned and how this summer series will work. And I also want to share some of the context for why the invitation is approaching this topic of reparations. And if you'd like to skip ahead directly to the conversation with Denise, I will put that start time for you in the show notes. And then in this episode, after my conversation with Pastor Denise, I want to conclude with some scripture meditation that frames and focuses our question for this summer series. How can my response to reparations allow me to cultivate the like-minded consciousness of Jesus who emptied and humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross? And that's the vocabulary of Philippians 2 that I hope we'll return to again and again as we work through this very difficult and yet important topic. So to put this more bluntly, by approaching racism through this immediate vocabulary of reparations, what do we as Jesus people have to lose? Okay, so again, for this episode, we'll be covering details about the summer study, then some context, and then I'll offer the conversation with Denise, and then finally, a meditation for you to pray with. And I have to definitely begin with lots of gratitude for anyone who would be interested and willing to engage this conversation, I put together a video that you can also find on the invitationcenter.org website of Pastor Denise sharing some of these candid thoughts. And even as I edited that video together, I found my own lingering nervousness, my own, uh, my own resistance. This is not an easy conversation. So thank you for diving in with me on this part of the invitations journey this summer. I deeply believe that the Spirit is moving in powerful ways to open us as individuals, as the church, 
and maybe even parts of our country so that we can turn from our immediate circumstances of COVID and quarantine and the increasing polarization of our country and the church and to turn from these difficulties towards a deeper hope in the gospel power, the saving work, the healing work of Jesus Christ. And it's important for me to also own here at the beginning that at no point will I personally intend to trap you in some sort of political gotcha game. Despite the immediate appearances, I am not a card-carrying progressive Democrat. I'm sincerely a broken, flawed person stumbling toward the life of Christ as best I can. And in the holy irony of the work of the Spirit, I find myself staring into the face of my own white supremacy, my own ego, my own need to control and manipulate. And here on this steep learning curve of coming to terms with racism, I'm becoming more excited about the gospel work of Jesus' death and resurrection. I think I'm in many ways more Jesus-y than I've ever been. So I want this to be a safe journey for any and all participants. And that safety comes from and through the Spirit of Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So back to the details of how this is going to work this summer. I'm inviting anyone and everyone to dive into this very important book, Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. We will be hosting a few Zoom discussions, one early and another later in the summer. Yet I strongly encourage you to find your own small group of four to six people to meet with. I will have a download document for your group to use that will have some suggested ways to use your time together as you discuss, pray, wrestle, and help each other discern not just what white supremacy is, not just what reparations is, but also how we as people of gospel hope can respond to this journey. So if you're not already a subscriber to The Invitation, you can do that at theinvitationcenter.org. And that way you'll get links and direct information as the summer journey develops. If you are a pastor, I understand that with our current political climate in and outside of the church, it may be difficult for you to ask your entire community to read this book. However, I want to suggest perhaps you have an elder or two, some other core lay leaders some other people on your staff. Perhaps you could gather a few small groups to read through this book and then together identify some appropriate ways for you to translate some of the material from this book and this journey into other parts of your congregation. I will be offering a podcast episode each week throughout this journey that might very well go into 
early October, but that doesn't mean you have to go by my pace. The gift of the internet and archiving is that this material will be online and available for you at whatever pace, whether it's faster than the podcast or slower, that you and your community are able to travel on. So the way this will work is one week, I will be joined by a pastor, an activist, some community leader, an author, or scholar to respond to each of the chapters. And the following week, I will be joined by some other creative thinker who will help me draw you into the inner work of prayer and repentance, and then to regularly ask the discernment question of how we can actively respond. So one week we dive into a chapter, and then the next week we respond prayerfully creatively and with a call to action. Some highlights I can already let you know about that are in store for us. We will of course have both authors involved, Duke and Greg. Right now I'm just working out with them the details of the best way to insert their voices into this series. I've also secured some time with Kristen Dumay, Calvin University history professor and author of the very important 2020 publication, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen will be further unpacking some of her research on racism that couldn't fit in the scope of Jesus and John Wayne. The next episode after this one that you're listening to right now, I have historian Jesse Curtis joining me to engage on the introduction of the reparations book. Jesse has proven to be a generous and insightful conversation partner that I already hope I can get back on this podcast in the future. His forthcoming book coming out next fall is The Myth of Colorblindness, Evangelicals, and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era. My friend Chris Hoke, a Washington State jail chaplain, gang pastor, prisoner re-entry organizer, and author. Chris has been on the podcast a few times before. Chris will be covering one of the chapters Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, another former guest of this podcast. He will not be presenting in this series himself, but he has connected me with some incredible people who have been working on the topic of reparations long before I even began to consider it. And then among the other local pastors and leaders that will be joining us throughout, we will also have my very own wife, Susanna Childress, hoping to have her involved in various ways. Susanna is not only a well-published poet and essayist, she's also the one who challenged me the most in coming to terms with my own Josh-centric, defensive lack of sensitivity for the deeper, unseen, and unattended racism that I carry within myself. I've asked Susanna to join me in some of our own candid conversations here with you 
so that she and I can wrestle with these things in the practical context of our own family because that's really where the rubber hits the road. And of course, one important way for us to act in response to the question of reparations is to read black authors. So Susanna will be reading some poetry from older as well as contemporary poets because literature and the arts have such a profound ability to form our awareness and even compassion. So I invite you to buy the book from a black-owned bookstore. For those of you in West Michigan, there is one in Grand Rapids. It's called We Are Lit, which you can find online. And there's also a link to a list of black-owned bookstores that you can find under the Justice tab at theinvitationcenter.org. Please dive into the book. Be creative with your small group or your community and how you can approach this. And don't forget the PDF file that I will have on the website for you that offers some suggestions of how to use your time together to discuss, pray, repent, and act. Okay, so now the why, the context of this book series. May 25 is next Tuesday. That is the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And likely if you are listening to this, you were struggling to know how to respond last summer. And likely you felt your own sense of powerlessness. Maybe you did a few marches, were involved in some protests, tried to share some articles and engage people rigorously through social media. Personally, I read a bunch and did all of those things. But the question is, how can I tangibly respond to confront police brutality and to participate in the healing of the damage done by white supremacy. Last summer, I opted to guide a book through a reading of Father Martin Laird's text on contemplative prayer. It's the second book in a three-part series called A Sunlit Absence. And the way I chose to frame that examination of contemplative prayer in that context, in the wake of the national upheaval and the race riots. My way of diving into that was to suggest that I practice contemplation so that I am more able to see how I am part of the problem. And that is indeed what our deeper spiritual practices can help us with. We can quiet ourselves and open ourselves to the loving presence of God. And the Holy Spirit then helps us see how we each carry our different burdens, to see each obstacle that's keeping us from deeper communion with the presence and love of God. The Holy Spirit was given us to shine light in the darkness, to teach us, and then to help us loosen our grasp 
on our addictions, our selfishness, our anger, bitterness, jealousy, impatience, as well as our xenophobia, nationalism, and white supremacy. Now this is where I start getting evangelical. This is where I start getting really excited. It's the integration of anti-racism and contemplation that is a very specific gift for us at this time. This is the most vital conceptual reality that's available to us. And this is the reason why I'm causing a ruckus with this book study and the podcast through the invitation. This is the warp and woof, the substance and goodness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me describe the integration of anti-racism and contemplation for you this way. God is not a being that we can exhaust. He is not a being that we are ever finished with. God cannot be exhausted by our theology or with our doctrine, or more specifically, he cannot be exhausted in our worship or prayer. Racism, indeed white supremacy, is not a demon that can be quickly exercised by one book or one workshop, by one or a few black friends or black co-workers. There will always be more of God for us to discover. And on this side of heaven, there will always be more purification, more layers of our vices, more layers of pride and gluttony, anger and self-protection to peel back. So the framing vocabulary of considering reparations is from Philippians chapter 2 of dying to myself. And this is the meditation I want to offer you to engage after my discussion here with Denise. Again, what do you and I have to lose when we resist the vocabulary of white supremacy? What do we have to lose? And then finally, for understanding the why of what we're doing, why the title white people talking to white people about racism. The point here is that people of color by and large have already done the work. And in fact, black Christians have always and are still having their own conversations about how they can and should engage white Christians. If you want to listen in on this current conversation, I cannot recommend more highly the gift of the Pass the Mic podcast with Tyler Burns and Jamar Tisby, the good people of The Witness, a black Christian collective. Right now, Tyler and Jamar are working through a 
Leave Loud series in their podcast. And I highly recommend that if you will be joining the invitation, reading reparations with us, that you at least listen to Tyler and Jamar's March 4th episode called What is Leave Loud? And I'll put a link to that in our show notes for you as well. So what we are suggesting here is that it's time for white people to deeply commit to the work of examining racial injustice. My hope is to offer this podcast series as a rigorous yet safe and graceful space for you and your people to dive into this work with the incredible help, power, and love of the Holy Spirit and the help of the Spirit in and through the other Christians who are with you on this same journey. So of course, anyone is welcome to join into this conversation, white, black, brown, or any person of color. But please understand that we cannot burden our black brothers and sisters with doing this work for us anymore. The point of the Leave Loud movement is that people like Tyler Burns and Jamar Tisby and many, many black Christians before them have already been doing the work of racial apologetics, of trying to create a conversation that brings us together, white Christians, black Christians. And yet what they're saying by Leave Loud is that white believers have been unwilling to listen. So then, it is a great, immense honor and gift that here my pastor Denise still has the willingness, love, and patience to talk with us. The Reverend Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer is the lead pastor, pastor of Embracing at Maple Avenue Ministries in Holland, Michigan. She graduated from Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, where she received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. And after working as a social worker for many years, she went on to become the first African-American woman to graduate from Western Theological Seminary here in Holland with a Master of Divinity degree. A couple of years ago, Denise also earned her doctorate in ministry from Western Theological Seminary, researching apartheid in the American church, looking toward the development of an embracing model of ministry. The Reverend Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer is a dynamic, anointed preacher, teacher, and pastor. I believe the best pastor here in town. She has served as the chair of the diversity team at Western Theological Seminary and other seminaries and is a consultant to the president of the seminary on matters of diversity as well. So, Denise, thank you for coming to sit in on the podcast for the invitation. It's great to have you. You are a true gift to the MAM, to Maple Avenue Ministries, and to my family, and to Holland, Michigan, 
into the church, and it's an honor and a gift to be able to have, uh, I, I hope, a beautiful but often an awkward and difficult conversation. And it seems uh, graceful to be able to approach you with this because, as you were just saying, you've, you've already been doing this work of translation. Um, some folks have described it as um, a kind of apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamar Tisby, mm-hmm. he, he's uh, on the podcast now talking about leaving loudly. And uh, he said, I did all of the apologetics I could, and nobody listened to me. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for us to leave loudly. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you continue to have patience and endurance mm. to engage this work? Well, first of all, thank you for the, the invitation to come to the invitation. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly my privilege to be able to do that and um, to explore these very important topics. Um, you know, having been engaged in this conversation in this way for probably at least 20 years now, mm-hmm. um, I, I have to identify it most of all as a call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often say to, to uh, folks who are just coming to this work, you have to mark your territory just so you can see if there's a shift in any movement. Mm-hmm. And I think being here at MAM has just been really, has been really gas on the fire for mm-hmm. me to really see people digging in and taking the matters of racial equity, mm-hmm. justice, mm-hmm. Um, centering the health, healing, and wholeness of black people in particular unapologetically, and and for the flourishing of all people Mm -hmm. and understanding the interconnectedness of that. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's really what has really encouraged Mm -hmm. um, me being in this space and Mm -hmm. seeing the growth and the the commitment um, of the body of Christ here Mm -hmm. and and, and others in the wider community. Mm -hmm. I think that has been what propels me to just to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you are encouraged, you have seen growth I have, oh my, yes. I, uh-huh. You know, I often say to people, you know, Maple Avenue, a bunch of crazy people just like me, <laughs> you know. And so there's just the very fact that, you know, we've been talking about reparations, not not drawing any conclusions about it, you know, sure. but just opening up the conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I was sitting in Northex one day, a, a few years ago even, and there was a conversation I walked into where two white guys, Mamalee guys, were talking about um, generational wealth and and how to, to think about their generational wealth that they will soon inherit and how to think about that in, 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 in regards to reparation. Okay. And I just thought, you guys are crazy. Are you seriously like okay. right here talking about this <laughs> out loud with each other? And th- these are the kind of things that I continue to see happening mm-hmm. here. And again, as I said, not necessarily drawing any conclusions, but mm-hmm. there are places where these kind of conversations would never, never, never happen. Okay. I uh, worked at Hope College in the worship ministry for eight years, and we had a wonderful uh, gospel le- choir leader, um, Brian Lowe, and he lived over in Kentwood. And uh, I often said to him, thank you for coming all the way over here to Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a transplant here into Holland, and I'm white, mm-hmm. and I still feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And it takes a kind of uh, conviction and courage for you to keep coming back here to do a kind of music that not everybody wants to hear all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so I've thought of, I thought of you and your family in that way. Um, what nourishes you the most to stay here in, in Holland and continue? You, you said it's the ma'am, you feel safe here, but other, other specific things that keep you alive to want to stay in this ministry? Well, you know, I mean, I have, I have a wonderful friend group I call my village. Okay. Um, that, keeps, that keeps me grounded and nourished that way. Um, you know, my children were born here. My two biological children were born here. They know how to navigate this terrain. And, and to be completely honest, it's, it's, it's not the worst place in the world to okay. be a beautiful lake. <laughs> you know, um, a beautiful temperament if you want to avoid conflict. This is a great place to hang out. Yeah. We have tulips. I mean, yeah. there, there are a lot of beautiful things about West Michigan, and Holland in particular. Yeah. Um, I think because I went to seminary here and uh, kind of was formed into this sort of freedom fighter in a lot of ways right here in this church as a layperson and in this community, it, it, it seems like... Um, part of what it, you know, what it means to be faithful, you know, is to is to dig into whatever work God has given me to yeah. do. So today, I don't feel weary about it. Okay. There are days when when it is wearying, okay. um, but today, I, I just, I just, I'm grateful that God trusts me in this yeah. space and place to be able to open up these conversations mm-hmm. and to help people walk faithfully mm-hmm. um, in the direction of a faithful witness for Christ Church. That's. Uh really generous to think of Holland. It is a great family town. It's a great place to raise your kids. I know your kids have been at awesome schools and uh, it's easy um, to be cynical. It's easy to want to look uh, pessimistically at things. And so you continue to have, uh, you embrace tulip time. Uh, Lightly. In some ways, we, we have. We, we look forward to the parades, especially the Saturday parade. That's yeah. kind of our favorite you know, spot there and, yeah. and time to see all of our friends and people. Um, so there are many aspects of it. You know, traffic, you know, we hate it. Yeah. Local folks are like, you know, of course this year is different. But, you know, in the past, the traffic is something. And I, I like tulips. I'm not crazy, crazy about tulips, but they're pretty. <laughs> you know, there are a couple things to engage in. You know, I was looking forward last year to Gladys Knight coming, you know, because um, I thought, wow, tulip time is really, you know, doing something when you bring Auntie Gladys um, to, to town. And then COVID shut that down. And so we missed that. And so I don't know what the next plan is going to be for that but um that that had the capacity to to widen the breadth and the and the um the the gaze of what um tulip time has to offer for people who don't necessarily resonate with the dutch descent great so um so a lot of what uh a lot of what's motivating me to dive into this book on reparations began last summer with the murder of George Floyd. Is there a way that you have thought about, you know, why was it this tragedy and not all the others? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a question that I've continued to ask, mm-hmm. ask myself and many have really grappled with at this time. I, I think one of, the, one of the key things about COVID, the way, the way God, I would say, God intervened and worked during COVID was such that, you know, we were all so eager to get back to our lives, right? It was almost summer. We, you know, we're eager to get to the beach. We're eager to go on vacation. We want to see the curve flatten. 
you know, generally we're busy just buzzing around and getting things done and not paying attention to what's going on in the world or, you know, on television. And, you know, those people who are interested in those things are interested in those things, right? I think back to when the verdict for um, the person who murdered Trayvon Martin came out. And it was about 9.30 at night on a Saturday night. And when the verdict came and I went on my Facebook page and it was just so stark how some of my colleagues, pastors, colleagues, who were preparing to preach the next day were asking the question, how many people's sermons just changed? And then on the other side of my Facebook page, people were just kind of like, oh, you know, it was a great day. The kids went to play. They, you know, people just, it didn't seem to have any real, you know, marked effect on, 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 on them. And so just the, 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 this, the, just the difference there was just, just so, just so telling to me. Whereas I think with George Floyd, what happened was everyone was watching. We were watching for different reasons. We weren't watching for George Floyd. We were watching for ourselves. Yeah because we were ready to get back out and we were looking for the direction mm-hmm. to determine for us when it would be okay mm-hmm. for us to lift this veil that COVID had placed upon mm-hmm. us earlier in the year. And I think because everyone was looking, mm-hmm. nobody could look away. Mm-hmm. It could not be denied. Um, and uh, we all sort, saw it at the same time. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a jar fell off the shelf and everything was there and we had to identify it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where collectively um, as a country, we finally had to sit back and say, oh, we, we, really, we really do have a problem here. Mm-hmm. I think that's really why it became so mm-hmm. cataclysmic. Yeah, the, um, the ordering of events that we have been in quarantine and we're all just sitting around <clears throat> eager to look at anything, just whatever moves, we're bored. And then this happened, so it, it's like it prepared a stage for us psychologically. Would you dare to say that that is all of God's design, that there's a potential movement here of the spirit? I absolutely think so. Yeah. I absolutely think so. I mean, I don't believe that God sent COVID to sure. you know, kill millions of people. Um, however, I do believe that in God's providence that there's, this, there's something at work there mm-hmm. that is drawing um, God's people and indeed all people, you know, into the fullness thereof in God's mystery that we may not necessarily know. And so I do think, I mean, and and even with George Floyd, like there were all these things that were kind of building up in slow ways, all of these sort of incidents Mm -hmm. of racial injustice that we were kind of noticing along the way. And then Ahmaud Aubrey Mm -hmm. is really what broke, I mean, people just left, forgot about quarantine and Mm -hmm. just ran straight to the streets. I'm not sure if it was because they were tired of being in the house and needed a good reason to get out (laughs) or because, you know, it really yeah. was what it was, but I mean, I think that that, that we were already on the edge um, from some of the other things, and then when this, when that happened, George Floyd he just took off, and I think that God used the occasion of our gaze watching the TV. When is going to be our time to say it's your time in a way that maybe you didn't anticipate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about what's happened in the last, specifically year, year and a half, compared to 1968? You know, I think this grassroots movement thing um, has always been so, so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about the civil rights movement, um, really being rooted in a lot of ways in the black church, mm-hmm. um, but certainly in community. But then to see this sort of pendulum swing um, in this era where this is young folks' energy mm-hmm. that, that's really leading this. This is, these are people often um, at, you know, on the front lines who are skeptical about faith or mm-hmm. cynical about faith and certainly not even thinking about faith 
who were rising up and who were taking center stage um, and um, this idea of like a like leaderless movement, mm-hmm. you know, where when everybody has a responsibility, mm-hmm. um, um, and nobody is, is trying to outshine. I think if we had to point to one figure right now and say, this person is leading the movement, we'd come up short in the ways that, you know, in the 60s, you know, you, you had, mm-hmm. you know, some more kind of shining key mm-hmm. figures um, to look to and point mm-hmm. to. So I think that that's some of the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's also this uh, embarrassment um, about how the churches um, are or aren't responding mm-hmm. uh, to this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of talking, and we've been talking for decades, mm-hmm. and action is, 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 is in, in you know, short order. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of silence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of silence, there's a lot of weariness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, the whole complicity of the church, mm-hmm. like the degree to which we need to own this mm-hmm. reality that, that for over 400 years, um, the church of, of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, has been complicit in the unloving of black people. And this is a big uh, theme, the, the, the focus of your website, First Corinthians 13 Project, you say very clearly the church, America has never loved black people. Mm. Can you speak some more about that for the podcast listeners? Sure, yeah. I mean, it was a profound moment between me and God mm. um, um, that day as I, as I watched the protests erupt as we were mm-hmm. um, approaching uh, Juneteenth, the mm-hmm. celebration of, of, of our freedom. Um, as black people in America, and I was so burdened, and I was screaming at God, mm-hmm. what is it? Why is it for 400, <clears throat> excuse me, over 400 years, you know, it seems that we have been on the receiving end of oppression and of violence, and is it us? What is it that we need to re- confess? What is it that we need to repent of? What, what, what is it that we've done, and, and is it us? And I, I heard, I believe I heard in the spirit, God say, it's not that you've not loved me. It's just that America has never loved black people. And so then if 1 Corinthians 13 is the barometer for what it means to love, patient, kind, long-suffering, does not envy, does not boast, does not seek its own way, um, then the church has been complicit. We have this definition, but we have not engaged in that as it relates to, to black people in America. And that's not just to say white people have not mm-hmm. I don't even think that we as black people have loved ourselves in 1 Corinthians 13 sort of ways. Wow. And in fact, we have, uh, I think, spent so much time trying to love others mm-hmm. in those ways, trying mm-hmm. to be patient, um, with our oppressors, trying to be kind in the faces of um, all kinds of, of oppression and rejection. We've spent so much time doing that that we've not been patient or kind to ourselves. And so this is the work. And that was the wind in my sails. That was just like, I have a text. I have an answer. I have a word from the Lord. And that's when I set out on this, this journey to construct and curate First Corinthians 13, which is a, a platform for just information so people can stop asking me, what should I read, what, should I, what do I think? 
it's there. It's a, um, it's a, it offers a process. It has a survey to try to help people get at maybe where am I on this continuum between um, just sort of wetting my appetite on, on matters of racial justice um, all the way to how do I become a disciple maker? Um, go back and get others and bring them on this journey um, in ways that will, that will continue to help us be faithful. Yeah, so this is the, the generosity, the, uh, the bearing of burdens for the conversation around racial justice that white people are trying to learn when it comes to reparations or healing, how central can the black people around me be actively involved in my own journey? And what you're saying is, I've been teaching on this for a long time. I'm gonna put this on a website. I, I don't know if I can engage Josh on videos every week <laughs> and have people calling me on the phone to go through this again. So go spend some time. I've already done the work. Sit with this website. Um, and then maybe we'll have some conversations later. Right. Well, and, and I felt like um, God was revealing it to me so rapidly. Yeah. I had to have a place to put it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what we don't need is one more book. And what I don't have time for is yeah. to sit down and, yeah. you know, move into the organizational aspect of what it means to put this book together. Yeah. So I thought, well, well, Lord, what is going to be the best way for me to capture the, the, the ways in which even as I was as preaching every Sunday, you know, and the text is just always pushing against me and leaning me in that direction. I'm in Judges 8. I'm reading about um, the Levite and the unnamed woman. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that becomes a message about dismemberment, which reflects 1 Corinthians 12. You cannot say that because I'm not the arm or the leg, that you have no need of me, and this dismemberment is exactly what, um, what has been communicated to black people historically. We do not need you. Mm -hmm. um, I think about Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, um, the founders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who were pastors in the Methodist Church. Um, alongside their white brothers, right? And they, they, they began to push and urge um, those in leadership to, to better embrace, right, their, their black brothers and sisters who were also in the same denomination. And um, they were literally, like, kicked out of the church um, just, just for praying um, for this and, and, and asking and begging for this kind of um, siblingship that the gospel mm -hmm. demands and, 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 and offers generously, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as, as I think about that, that communication right up front from the church, mm -hmm. ah, we have no need of you. Mm -hmm. We're welcoming you into our denomination and you can stay in your corner. We have no need of your songs. Mm -hmm. We have no need of your God talk. We have no need of your experience. We have no need of your worship, your hospitality, your ways. We have no need of them. And that causes this, what I call this dismemberment mm -hmm. um, in the body of Christ. And it's not from the universal body, of mm -hmm. course, but from the, the, the local body, right? Mm -hmm. The institutional church mm -hmm. is fragmented like this Levite, right, in Judges 8 again, as he tears the limbs off of this woman and tosses mm -hmm. them to the wind. This is the picture of dismemberment that comes to mind. So every time I'm in the text, it was just giving me more and more fuel for the fire. Mm -hmm. And it was coming so quickly that I just, I just had to have a place to, mm -hmm. to just put it so that others could, could partake of it as well. Mm -hmm. And if you had 
uh, feedback? And you, do you know how the website's already serving? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've done some, um, I spent the summer doing some classes and walking through that, which really helped me clarify a lot of things. Um, I've had quite a few people take the survey. Um, I'm looking to actually um, work on expanding the survey so it's not just individual, but that organizations, leadership teams and such can do it and get a better read on where they are collectively. So I'm working on that. And um, and, and right now I'm, I'm, I'm refreshing, working on refreshing the page to sort of put um, front and center this whole idea of how to ask good questions when when my, my good white friends are in the presence of people who are in positions of power and who are amenable to learn. How do we ask the sort of questions that can plant seeds in the hearts of, of, of people who, are, who sit on school boards or who sit on city council or who sit you know, in these places? How do we ask the questions that can allow those seeds to sit and to germinate so that when those persons are sitting in those important places, those questions begin to yield some things that, that might look like transformation? Yeah. And that strikes me, maybe to continue that question of the difference between 1968 and today, what we're saying is that back then we had Malcolm X and Dr. King and other pivotal leaders that the focus was on and around their, their action and their movement, whereas now, just by your witness, you're trying to empower people to seep into every corner when you're talking about school boards. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the question underneath this is how do people change? How do we get people to change the way they think and the way they act? Ta-Nehisi Coates in this 2014 essay on a case for reparations just said he wanted, he was calling for a, a revolution, a spiritual revolution yeah. that would pervade not just reparations and financial remunerations, recovery, but in every corner of society. Mm-hmm. And so you're, what you're offering then is a way, it sounds very much like discipleship. <laughs> it is, you know, and you know the secret sauce is what we have, yeah. and that is simply repentance. Yeah. And often we talk about repentance like it's a thing that you say. You know, mm-hmm. People will say, well, I repented. Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm-hmm. You know, repentance is an action, mm-hmm. and it starts with a broken heart. Mm-hmm. I believe the Apostle Paul says something like, godly sorrow leads to repentance and leads no shame, right? And so if, if, if America doesn't have a broken heart, if the church, who is front and center in the, uh, in the whole atrocity of slavery, uh, Jim Crow, and a whole bunch of other atrocities related to black people in America, if the church does not have a broken heart, the American church in particular, doesn't have a broken heart, a woe is me, you know, a rending of the garment, as the prophet would have, right? If, if we don't have that about the history, then we don't have repentance. Um, and so our conversations about who's racist and who's not racist, our conversations about who's complicit and culpable, who's not, all of those conversations are in vain if they're not coming from the place of a broken heart. And so I think, you know, so in the First Corinthians 13 project, I told you it's also a process. And the process of repentance that I try to offer, I think, um, walks lock and step with this whole conversation about reparation. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you bring someone to a broken heart? Mm-hmm. You can't make somebody have a broken heart. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can rehearse the history and stare it down and look at it. You can dig, in, in my analogy, you can dig into the soil 
in search of the root and examine every ingredient that has allowed us to grow the fruit of segregation, to grow the fruit of inequity, to grow the fruit of this unloving and this dismemberment of black people. We, we have to identify it and, and interrogate it in our institutions, in our churches, in our hearts, in our families. And if we, if we, if we are inclined to put on a magnifying glass and really stare it down for, it, for the truth that it reveals, it will break our hearts. And that's where repentance begins. Then we start talking about, okay, so now what, right? And so the next step, I call that step rehearsing, yeah. which literally means to turn over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then you're ready to add new ingredients because now that you've made room in the soil, mm-hmm. right? You've dug it up. You're kind of getting at the root. You've kind of set aside your ingredients. Now you have a hole. What do we do with this hole? We start to put new information into it. So now when we're reading Coates or when we're reading Tisby or when we're reading Lisa Sharon Harper or when we're reading, you know, um, the, the, the folks who are talking about this kind of stuff um, is um, Wilkinson. When we're reading this stuff, we're putting it in a soil that's already soft and conducive. So often we want to go straight to the reading, mm-hmm. right? We want to go, tell me what to read, tell me what to read. Yeah. No, we need to go down to our, on our knees and... Wow. And, and, and enter into a space that's going to break our hearts mm-hmm. before God. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, as I pray after every sermon, you know, break the bricks off of our hearts that our, that our hearts might be amenable mm-hmm. to the seeds, right, that, that God brings to us. Mm-hmm. And so now we're ready to remind, mm-hmm. be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Information comes in and it, it, it seeps into the soil. And now you have new information alongside some of the old information. You have new experiences connected to old experiences. Now we have the capacity to cross-pollinate. Mm-hmm. So now we might be able to grow something different. And in the last part um, is the actual work of of, of what I call remembering, mm-hmm. moving from dismemberment to remembering. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm always, always reminded of the biblical notion of remembering is not about having forgotten, but it's about calling forth, mm-hmm. right? I remember Moses is on the mountain and God is like so distraught about the golden calf thing, right? And he said, I'm going to destroy, you know, all everybody and I'm mm-hmm. just going to start with you, Moses. And Moses says, remember, Remember the covenant you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not that God had forgotten, but it's, it's, it's almost as if Moses said, come here, Abraham, stand in front of God. Come here, Isaac, stand in front of God. It's a re-bringing bringing back into membership that which reminds us of the covenants that we have made so that we can then do the important work that needs to be done. So I, I think, I think the, the conversation about reparations is couched in, must be couched in, this idea of this biblical notion of repentance and truly start through the broken heart. Mm-hmm. Your uh, three stages there map really well with uh, Walter Brueggemann's orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those three also map with origin way back in the third century, third, fourth century of um, the purgative the illuminative, the unitive, these stages of the self. And, and, and this is ultimately core to Jesus and Paul, mm-hmm. you know, dying to self, being able to look at uh, Psalm 139, search me and know me. Mm-hmm. And so um, as you have thought about this act of repentance, as you see America, the witness of the American church. I'm, I'm just drawn now upon what a gift my time with Howard Thurman and James Cohn over the last year has been. And, and basically these men have helped me understand, as you're saying, 
America and the church have never loved black people. And as a matter of fact, the black church became its own um, remembered organization out of, out of slavery. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the black church has borne witness to a gospel that the American church could not even see. Parts of who Jesus is for the world. They've preserved the way that Cohn says it, um, something to the effect that here the slave is preserving the true faith mm-hmm. <laughs> that the slaveholder completely missed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, within that, I mean, if, if, you don't, if, if you don't wanna go in this direction, that's totally fine if mm-hmm. this is too much, but has it been difficult for you and people in your community actively to take white Christianity seriously? You know, Josh, it gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be completely honest. That's what I, want, I appreciate yeah. you asking. It gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. It really does because I just wonder how do people read scripture? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work um, thinking about um, decolonization. Mm-hmm. You know, scriptures, you know, I, I do some work in South Africa. And as I'm in, when I'm in South Africa, I'm, I'm in an all black village, um, churches, community, everybody's black um, mm-hmm. where I work. And I notice how we move as black people um, on the continent and how we worship and how we celebrate. And I see such a resonance with black people in America, even though it's been generations since we've been on the continent. Mm -hmm. And even though we can't, most of us, trace our lineage back to South Africa in particular. But there's still all these, these things that are rooted in our spirituality and in our, in our ways of engaging with God and with each other that is just mirrors so incredibly. And I say, this is who God made us to be. And then I look at colonization, which came in and said, that's not okay. That, 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 that's not what it means to be Christian. And that's, that's not Christ-like. And that's not, you know, so as I look at all of these layers that's been placed upon it, you know, and then, you know, I, I think about, you know, the, the simple um, elements of, of confession and of repentance and of humility and of generosity. And, and, and I, unfortunately, I so often miss that when I'm, you know, engaging on, um, on, on the white side mm-hmm. of the bride. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, seems to, there seems to be a sense of scarcity mm-hmm. and um, of an of a, of a unwillingness, a fear maybe even, to, to admit um, the, the, the atrocities that have had, happened before or to, to humbly be able to rend one's heart and say, I grew up in a community that is all white. My school, my everything, my church, my family, everything has been white. How can I not be racist? Mm-hmm. And to just name that and own that and say, I don't want it to be true, though. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm going to do the work. So, yes, it, it becomes more and more difficult yeah. um, in, in our communities. I mean, yeah. I've, I, I, in the last year, I, I've known several people, mm-hmm. you know, to just simply say, I, I just can't do church. I, I yeah. love God. I love Jesus. But I, I just can't do church because I just I, I can't continue to to entertain this masquerade, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I sit I sit with laments more so, more than. Uh, rebutting or, you know, or, yeah. or, or trying to convince. I, I sit and I, mm-hmm. I lament and I, I often think, well, you know, if I didn't, if I wasn't a pastor at Maple Avenue, I don't know where mm-hmm. I'd go to church, yeah. honestly, in this day and time. So, yeah, that's, that's tough. Hold on one second. I want to use it. <clears throat> oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Willie Jennings. <laughs> so the... Um... The truth, what you're saying, you know, not just running to books, 
Um, where does the literature help us? And this summer we're trying to do a book study. And uh, the hope with our journey is to do one week where someone is responding to the literature and then the next week the episode will be some sort of um, Christian response to this, prayerful, um, confession, lament, repentance, but then also uh, calling people to some actions, to to tangible actions. Um, And with that said, I would say that what's surprising to me is that, and I've been, this would be my seventh year helping in this prison, volunteering at E.C. Brooks and doing contemplative practices there. When I was in college at Wheaton, I sang in the gospel choir, you know. I got to, my, my choir director would uh, invite me to come down in the middle of our singing. And she would say, now Brother Banner's going to come down and give a good word. And I was supposed <laughs> to come up with something. And yes. we were at big black churches on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I, I would just get in the, go on, white boy, go <laughs> on, you know. And I thought, you know, all these years, I, I had a sense of reconciliation as the vocab we were using then. But then this last year, something more appealed, open. Um, my wife had been saying as much, mm-hmm. <laughs> challenging me. Um, and so, so, so what I'm saying is that the action of my life led me to then read books in a different way. Mm. And so um, I've named um, Thurman and James Cone, but really the one who cuts to the core for me is uh, Willie James Jennings. And for those in West Michigan, um, you'll appreciate that he grew up in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. He's a college, a uh, Calvin University graduate. Mm-hmm. And in his other book, uh, Christian Imagination, he describes at the beginning his experience of first doing a student sermon at Calvin. Mm-hmm. And after he finishes, he gets this adulation and the, the handshaking and the hugs from faculty and students in a way that he'd never experienced as a person of color. Mm-hmm. And how disorienting it was mm-hmm. for him to suddenly be welcomed on the inside yeah, yeah, and yeah. the way that he hadn't been. Mm-hmm. And why, and he, he teases that out in Christian imagination, but specifically, um, even in his introduction, for um, this book, After Whiteness, which came out in this last year, he says, um, the trouble with the way that we are understanding institutions is that we've imagined institutions without reckoning with their deep embeddedness in cultivating white self-sufficient masculinity Mm. and binding ideas of efficiency and effectiveness to the performance of that persona. Institutions are caught up in the historical trajectory of plantation pedagogy Mm, 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 mm. that teaches us to be institutional men, which is how to aim at becoming a master. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So, so his, his whole thesis here, and this is a man who then was at Duke for many years and now is at Yale, and he is, is a genius, not just on the page, but just his whole being. One of my friends had him as a professor at oh, Duke wow. and was just telling me this last week, another Calvin grad, um, this friend was saying, yeah, when I would go into um, 
Dr. Jennings' office, he would say, you want a candy? <laughs> you, want a, you need a candy. And then uh, when he eventually told me, yeah, I'm, I'm also a Calvin University grad, he goes, oh, you really need a candy. <laughs> so so he, he's kind of got this genius of, uh, and I've seen him in lecture, I had one of my friends just say this, this man, this scholar is full of uh, racist hate and vitriol. And I was like, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> um, so this, this, these layers of threat, these layers for the white man, Jennings has helped me understand that's because the master of the plantation is threatened that the whole thing is going to get burned down. Exactly. Which is really where race came from, right? Mm-hmm. You think about Bacon's Rebellion? Mm-hmm. That's exactly where the whole construct came mm-hmm. from. Because there were people from all parts of the world mm-hmm. who were working land together, mm-hmm. right? But the people who owned the land... Mm-hmm became very, very threatened mm-hmm. and used the whole aspect of, well, if you're a Christian, then there's a different standard. And in those times, Christian meant white. People mm-hmm. weren't coming from the Caribbean. You know, th- we hadn't yet had colonization, mm-hmm. right, at that time. So it was a way of saying white. And then, you know, when, um, when black people and other folks started to convert to Christianity, mm-hmm. that's when they had to explicitly say mm-hmm. white mm-hmm. only. You know, and so that's exactly, that's, that's when we dig up the soil, mm-hmm. right? And we get to the root of the history. This is what we see and this is what we find. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that, it, you know, the, the, the cross or the, 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 the body of Christ, I'd say if we, if we dug up, you know, as far as and deeply as we can go, mm-hmm. we'd find ourselves mm-hmm. in the pit of an empty tomb. Mm-hmm. That's, where, that's where it goes. Mm-hmm. But our institutions were created for the purposes of the, thir- the, the thriving and flourishing of particular people mm-hmm. who, if you think about maybe our colleges in our town or if you think about our denominations and our seminaries, or all, if, you, if you dig down as far as you can, mm-hmm. you'll find out it was actually for the flourishing mm-hmm. of white men to become masters, mm-hmm. right? As, as Jennings says. Mm-hmm. And so then if we want to change the trajectory of that, then we have to add new ingredients to the soil. But instead, what, we, we, what, we, what I find more than not is that we're willing to put ornaments, mm-hmm. what I call ornaments on a tree. Mm-hmm. So then people like me become the first this and the first that and the first other, that, thanks be to God, but we do. But not because it necessarily changes the institutional structurally, it changes the way it looks. It might have some effect on it. You know, surely if you put an ornament on a tree, a, you know, a Christmas tree is gonna make it prettier or uglier or whatever, right? But it's really not changing the soil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we can identify what's in the soil, put some of me in there, mm-hmm. then we're going to grow different fruit. Yeah. And what we're saying is, you know, just shining a light, that work of the apologetic from Jamar Tisby and all these years, what he en- ends up seeing is just a, a shuffling of the furniture, mm-hmm. the chairs, a mm-hmm. rearrangement, what you're saying, of the of the exterior, so we have the token um, black person on our staff. Mm-hmm. And what, what are you saying? I'm racist. Mm-hmm. We're not racist. We've got her, and she's speaking up. Mm-hmm. Well, is she speaking up in our, right. our staff meetings? And so w- what Christ calls us to, what's so threatening to all of us, mm-hmm. is to die and to be born again. Yeah. And that requires a leveling. That's why I was talking about the purgative or the, the disorientation. We could call it the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying, what I'm, what I'm coming to terms with, and this was really hard for me to not assume that you and your, your peers in the black church are some sort of saints or superheroes, mm-hmm. is that you've been wandering in the desert. 
from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you continue to show up and you're here. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, I, uh, it uh, reached my uh, recording time. I gotta hit that again. I hope I got some of that. I know mm -hmm. I got it on the audio. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're saying is that um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bearing witness. Why would I want to dive into this book on reparations for the podcast? It's just that there's never a better time than now. And uh, I feel like I'm going through a new conversion experience where I'm falling in love with Jesus again mm -hmm. because he's the one who came for the disinherited. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you know this about me, uh, Josh, but my grandfather was born to slavery. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, so I was thinking about this uh, this morning um, um, because, so my mother, I I'm adopted, my brother and I adopted, mm -hmm. and uh, my mother, adopted mom, was born in 1915. She was the, um, the last child of 10. Um, to older, to an older father, it was a mother's second marriage. And so my grandfather was actually born in, gosh, I think it's 1863. Hmm. I, I just really realized this not too long ago. I was looking at the um, 1920 census. And I, I don't know if you know anything, I don't know how it worked in other places, but you know, where I lived and grew up, you didn't talk about how old people were. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm not even sure if if honestly my dad knew how old my mother was mm -hmm. and, and what was on her driver's license was different from what was on her obituary, which was different than what the 1920 census said. Mm -hmm. She was five years old mm -hmm. at that time. Um, and so it had you know, her brothers and her sisters so forth and it had her, her mom and dad on there. And so um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a woman, as a, you know, my, my mom's been dead since 1997, but you know, as I look at the very strained relationship you know, that I had with my mom, thinking a lot about that as Mother's Day is coming, you know. Um, I think more and more about the person that she was, and I wonder, you know, what is it to be a little black girl in North Carolina, um, you know, in 1920 when the census comes around? You're five years old. Um, your father, you know, is an old man who was born in slavery. My mother always said sharecropping was nothing but slavery. Mm. That's, that's how she would say it. Mm. So, so, so in her... I never knew what that meant at that time, you know, but from her perspective, it was as though she was born into slavery. Okay. Okay. So you have a, you have a, you have a dad who was actually born in the institution. Mm -hmm. You have a mom who was born shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. which might as well have been in the same institution, particularly in North Carolina in this mm -hmm. little village where, um, where, where we call home. Um, and then, you know, so you have this uh, supposed to be reconstruction um, that really, you know, sort of fleshes out as, as sharecropping. Mm -hmm. um, and then her family is part of the Great Migration North. Her father dies when she's eight. And so then she and her mom and, and whoever else is not too, too old to travel um, don't have their own families there already. They migrate to the North. And so they had that experience shortly after, after her mother dies. Mm -hmm. She's still 14 years old. She's got to work. Now we're in a depression. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, as well, not just think about the trajectory of her life and to think that, like, that's my mother, mm -hmm. the only mother I've known. That's my grandfather, although I never knew him. Mm -hmm. The effects of slavery and how she raised me mm -hmm. and the tensions that we had, the ways that she viewed white people, the suspicions that she lived with, the loss and the longings that were never resolved in her, mm -hmm. all 
had their roots right in this institution that affected me. I, I went to college, my mother never called me. Why? I don't know, that's part of her story, right? Never called me, never visited me, never picked up the phone one time. And, you know, and, and so there's a very complex relationship there, but, but a lot of that does have to do with, right? The mindset, the reality, the, 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 the heart, the longings, the loss that came from having parents who, by all intents and purposes, were indeed slaves in America. So this reparations con uh, conversation is so interesting to me because I often hear people say, well, you know, nobody's living now mm -hmm. under the effects of slavery. Oh, no, I, I was watching, I was reading something or watching something the other day and a gentleman said something like, well, you know, nobody right now has grandparents, mm -hmm. you know, who were living during that time. Mm -hmm. And I sort of chuckled to myself because I thought, well, actually, yes, mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, so that makes this conversation even more robust mm -hmm. and necessary. Um, and, and, and I think conversation is the key word, mm -hmm. which is what I love about this book study and what I think is going to be so rich. Um, because we, we just need to be comfortable with the mm -hmm. conversation. We don't have to resolve it today mm -hmm. or tomorrow. Uh, but we do, we do need to be brave enough, mm -hmm. right, to wade into it, yeah. you know, and let the conversation happen to us, with mm -hmm. us and subsequently for us. That's, that's thank, thank you, that's beautifully said. So, so, and just to rehearse this for those that are on the journey with this book, we're calling this White People Talking to White People About Racism. And so we're not going to actively be drawing on Pastor Denise and other black voices because they've already said a lot and um, Thompson and Kwan in the book address this uh, from largely a white perspective, why, why are they the ones bringing this into print? Well, everything they're documenting is sourced from the black conversation, from the black scholars and pastors, those that have lived through it, you and your, your parents. And, mm -hmm. um, so um, you've already, I said to you yesterday, you've already done the work. <laughs> now mm -hmm. it's time for us, for me to do the work. And uh, I want, I'm really thankful to have you here to, to do a kind of orientation. Mm -hmm. um, I can't not but say um, to anyone who's on this journey, we can't expect any one black person in our lives to speak for all of mm -hmm. black America, mm -hmm. and even really for themselves right now. That's just a lot of emotional work. So to have you gift us with this mm -hmm. is, is a true, true gift, a true blessing. Um, so, so white people talking to white people about racism, as you sit and think about that in this book, what further questions or even concerns do you have? What kind of words of exhortation would you give us about how we continue, as you said, this conversation? I think the context for the conversation is what's so important. And when I realized that it's happening in West Michigan, where West Michigan nice is a real, real good, real, real thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's part of the important conversation of white people talking to white people on these topics. I think it has the capacity to remove a layer of shame. Mm -hmm. But I also think that sometimes when you have white people talking to white people, that there can be some hiding mm -hmm. um, that happens that, um, that if there are others in the room, um, you know, that they can call out or notice, mm -hmm. 
or recognize or poke at. Um, but of course, once we as people of color do that, we become scapegoated and then it becomes about something completely else. So, I mean, I think ground rules are gonna be critical and important. Um, brave space is gonna be absolutely necessary. Um, and I think a lot of holding each other, mm -hmm. uh, holding each other accountable, but then also holding each other as wounds begin to be exposed mm -hmm. and as, as truth comes to light. All of that is painful work. Um, and I think that as you do that work, you know, together, you know, with each other, mm -hmm. I think it's going to be important to hold up some of those values in order to make sure you're really, really getting at the work and not just hiding behind the niceties no. of things. And within that hiding, when I mean, you're talking about that room uh, and whoever's in that room, acknowledging that there's power structures in that room mm -hmm. that at various levels are enabling and protecting and continuing to be complicit in, in not just racism, just the sin of untruth. Mm -hmm. um, the scriptures uh, speak so loudly to searching our hearts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Search my heart, know me. But then trouble is, have we had a church where we can really allow people mm. to do that inner work? Even before mm. we get to, um, it could be any, any topic. So what my hope as a pastor, as a spiritual director, is that, that those wounds that come up dislodge all kinds of other things. And why would we do that? Because mm. it's what sets us free. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, and you know, you know, the light... Um, you know, uh, the darkness can't overcome the light, mm -hmm. you know, and so when we shine the light, we can't be afraid of the light, mm -hmm. and what it exposes mm -hmm. and what has to flee, mm -hmm. you know, um, and sometimes it seems easier to sit in the shadowy places, mm -hmm. you know, why, why, why kick up dust? Why, why, why not? Why does Jesus come? Why does the light come into the darkness, mm -hmm. right, to mm -hmm. set us free? Yeah, John 3, after our famous mm -hmm. six, verse 16 is that uh, those who loved the darkness mm -hmm. stayed in the darkness, they hid in the darkness, but those who loved the light stepped into the light mm -hmm. so that it says, so that their works would be manifest or wrought mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. God. Yes, 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 mm, love that. <laughs> so that's, that's really the work here. Um, and so that reminds me, you know, some folks might be wanting to continue to use the vocabulary of reconciliation Mm -hmm. Believing, haven't we already had that rot in God? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> as we bring this to a close, what do you find as the strength or weakness of that vocab of reconciliation mm -hmm. today? Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, the work that um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu did, mm -hmm. and it still is being done in South Africa around truth and reconciliation, mm -hmm. I think that that is... Um, a clear model of how that's going to okay. have to work. And I think that we, we have tried to work reconciliation without truth. Amen. And I think that um, the, 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 the process of reconciliation is still life-giving and fruitful and, and has great capacity for the work and the conversation we're having, yeah. except that the, uh, the term has been emptied of its, of its power and of its strength and has sort of been scapegoated for some kind of kumbaya, mm -hmm. kind of let's just get together and let's get along mm -hmm. in some type of melting pot sort of imagery. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it, it, it might need to be um, rested for a while mm -hmm. and then resurrected again in a right, faithful sort of way that reflects really what the ministry of reconciliation that yep. the Apostle Paul talks about, um, that we're all called to. Mm -hmm. I, I think in that, that must be bathed in truth and in light and not just in some sort of good feeling yeah. about being in the same place at the same time. Everything I've 
read about this and heard in conversations from black folks is that reconciliation as we've held it, especially in evangelical church, has served to insulate and protect white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, as we look back at this, it's really a, a vocab of reconciliation that's devoid of the true gospel of, of death of self. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying, not hiding, if we were really going to reclaim and redeem that word of reconciliation, we'd have to do the full confessional work. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we'll uh, turn to Arch Desmond and his work, Desmond Tutu's work, to, to redeem some of that. But, mm-hmm. but what we're saying right now is, at least in my, my discernment, I would rather use the vocab of reparations to mean something like mm-hmm. what I think the gospel means about reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, re- reparations as a term stings, though, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, because people immediately think you're coming for my money. <laughs> and, you know, I'm grateful that the conversation is broader and wider than that, and it's not mm-hmm. simply about money, mm-hmm. um, although that, that is part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, so I think it stings more. Reconciliation feels better. Mm-hmm. I think all of it fits under the banner of repentance, mm-hmm. which is the biblical language that we have. Reconciliation is a biblical language as well. Mm-hmm. I think reparations in many ways is a biblical image, mm-hmm. uh, even if not necessarily the word being used. But I think it all fits under the banner of repentance. And I think that if we can clarify that and be, com- be comfortable with that in our hearts and in our mouths saying that, mm-hmm. then we can place under that umbrella mm-hmm. the actual practices mm-hmm. of remembering which um, reparations and reconciliation are practices of remembering, bringing back into membership that for which we have spoken and said we have no need of you. That's a great way to bring this to an end and just rehearsing with that, that as you do that work, to have a community around you to support you, to engage that safe place, as you as you're saying. So we're encouraging probably most churches, at least in West Michigan, aren't going to tie on this book <laughs> as a congregation. Right. Um, but hopefully there's some small groups that mm. will pop up to do this kind of remembering, this uh, rehearsing and uh, remembering. Mm-hmm. So we will have um, some links to Denise's website as we continue to develop and grow. Um, she's got so much to give the church and we're trying to find ways to facilitate getting her teaching and her wisdom more accessible to us. Um, so I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Josh. It's really been a joy. Amen. Thank you. So Denise's website is firstcore13project.com. Com. So that's first, the number one, C-O-R, the numbers 13, project.com. And I am currently trying to recruit a few of my friends to help me help Pastor Denise keep developing that website. So for this meditation, all I simply want to offer is couple of readings through Philippians 3 verses 8 through 10 as I edit the material that you've just listened to and put that together I'm overwhelmed again rehearsing it reminding being reminded of all of the content and then 
being reminded of all the spiritual movements, the uh, opportunities to not just be moved towards humility, but I'll say that movement is in practice a kind of humiliation. It seems in the church we often want to romanticize. I have developed humility when the actual experience of it is quite stinging, quite painful, even embarrassing. So this work of looking inside ourselves to calm ourselves and to recognize that we are part of the problem. This is something that not only has to be done with the help of the Spirit, but it's that we get to turn to the help of the Spirit so that we experience the love and the grace, the transformation that comes with it. So I invite you to pay attention to your breath. For those of you that are not familiar with contemplative spirituality, all we're simply doing is acknowledging that there are ways that God can speak to us and move within us that are beyond our best thoughts and beyond our best feelings, deeper than our deepest instincts to do right actions. And so it's in our breath that we quiet ourselves and open the doors of our hearts as we're able to welcome the God who has already welcomed us. as I read through this passage just twice I invite you to allow your attention to be drawn by the movements of the Spirit where are you led how can this scripture help you makes a kind of sense kind of Jesus Holy Spirit sense of what reparation is not reparations as the academics would want to hand it to you, but reparations as a gift of the Holy Spirit. So a reading from Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death 
So here in between the readings, we resolve to go deeper, to open our hearts wider, allowing ourselves to be present. A second reading. For indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I invite you to consider again that question. Talk to Jesus about this. What do you have to lose? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, my friends, it is an honor and a gift to have you on this journey. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me. You can find me at josh at invitationpodcast.org. If you have other inquiries about our spiritual formation programs, we are now taking applications for our two offerings, the School of Prayer and the School of Contemplative Listening, both of which function at the vital intersection between contemplation and justice. Be great to hear from you about anything. And finally, I just solicit some prayers for me as I offer this to you. I would appreciate prayers that the Spirit would sustain me. This is hard work, and I'm going to try to crank out an episode a week here and administrating all the details and getting all these voices together. It's very exciting, but with all things, the question is how to develop a good, healthy pace. I hope and trust that you're finding that for yourself as well. So until next time. Amen.